because they aren't just scientific facts. They are stories of what it is to be in the universe, and they are stories about what it is to be a living thing in the universe. podcast, I speak with Robin Ince, a comedian, a writer, and host of the BBC series The Infinite Monkey Cage, alongside physicist Brian Cox. And today, Robin discusses the strange place he's found himself in as the resident science comedian and why it's a good thing to be the stupidest person in the room. Robin discusses how, after having met some of quite literally the greatest minds to have ever walked the face of the earth, that some of his opinions about people have changed, and how he has come to the realization that although people may perceive certain questions as stupid ones, actually, when they are motivated by curiosity, they often can be the most profound. We also discuss the idea of telling the story of science. For the longest time, science has been looked at and delivered in a very cold and unappealing way. And now through shows such as The Infinite Monkey Cage, in which Robin is host of, as well as a collection of other broadcasts and personalities, we are starting to uncover the emotions, the poetry, and the human story of science and scientific endeavor. Lastly, we talk briefly on how we could change the educational system to uncover this human story of science. Ideas such as scientists having to do the arts and arts having to take part in science. So, with that in mind, please welcome, as declared once by the Guardian newspaper, the Bicardigand polymath, Robin Ince. Mind-bending chemicals. I don't care, he wants to kill me. There are a few. It's been physicists actually have been the hardest, which is not most of the physicists I work with. It's not true, but the okay. ones who are not public physicists, they are you know theoretical physicists who mainly mm-hmm. stay in indoors. It's a very when you try and create conversation. I'm sure you've had that that where you go, oh, they go. No, that's not how I see that. Yeah. And you yeah. go, I've only prepared 20 questions. Whereas <laughs> if you have certain other people, like, yeah, one of my favourite interviews uh, is, uh, do you know Alan Moore, who wrote Watchmen yeah, of E4? Yeah. Alan, whenever I do live events with him, I just go, yeah, three questions will cover our two hours. You know, yeah. Alan just goes, he, he doesn't do that much publicly. So when he does come out, he just, the, the journeys he takes you on are, are magnificent. Yeah, there's, there's a difference with some people you speak to, and it's like just the really like question-answer dynamic, which, I mean, it, it works in some respect. If you're trying to learn something specific, especially because mainly I speak to scientists and stuff, it's it's not a bad thing if they're just answering the questions that they're getting. Mm. But uh, in, in some other sort of, if it's a bit more of a broader topic or something like that, it's quite difficult. And I feel like, uh, you know, when people sort of send me messages when they listen to an episode, they, they go, you know, I wish they said a bit more. I wish they sort of expressed themselves more. And it was a bit less like an essay, you know. Yeah, very difficult, but anyway, um, that's an important point. That's something that I did actually want to want to mention to you today, uh, which is you've sort of had the opportunity to speak to a lot of the highest of the highest academics, and uh, I've sort of noticed. I, I think academics and academia as a whole, the sort of face of it is changing compared to what it maybe used to be in the past. You know, in the past, it was almost frowned upon to like exercise or frowned upon to go into like sort of uh, an area of knowledge that isn't your sort of wheelhouse whereas now it's kind of seems to be a bit more expanded but for you do you feel like from the beginning of you talking to sort of some of these amazing minds to having spoke to so many of them again and again do you feel like your ideas about what a genius is or what a scientist is has changed over that time and even sort of do you feel less intimidated now? Do you feel more intimidated now? How's it altered from the beginning of sort of talking to all these people to to now? I think I'm less intimidated. I think the thing that I've got used to is my own ignorance, uh, the importance of doubt, the fact that there is nothing wrong with not knowing the deep right. knowledge of quantum cosmology uh, or whatever else it might be. That, that this is. Ex- I mean, I think one of the first problems you find when you sometimes do public shows with scientists mm-hmm. and you have a call for questions and sometimes if they come via Twitter or email, people will so often preface them with, I know this is probably a stupid question. 
Oh, yeah. And of course, it's not, there are, you know, the only stupid questions are questions you've asked because you know the answer and you're wanting to make some kind of point because they're a closed yes. question, they're a boring question. If they come from a point of fascination, then, and every time when I've done, you know, b- big tours with Brian Cox, stuff like that, and, you know, sometimes we're in a room with, with 12,000 people or whatever, um, you will get a question and it might be, why is the sky blue? It might be something like that. Mm hmm. And, of course, there's never a simple, you know, I, I think these people imagine that the scientists will then go, well, it's just due to uh, the blue molecules that, of course, uh, fall from cloud or whatever. They're expecting almost a one. And every simple question or even, you know, there was one time where it was about the, a slinky. And, you know, right. why does a slinky work in the way it does? Why does it go downstairs? Why does it not go up? Why All of these. And it ended up being, and I remember at, at the point, there was a moment where Brian almost looked like, oh, I think this is quite a, and then, no, it was a 15-minute answer. And it wasn't an wow. answer with a conclusion. And so I think what I've really got used to is accepting my shortcomings to some extent, though I always want to know more. I, I, I'm i not kind of just going to sit back and go, okay, I'm ignorant. That's enough. Yeah. yeah. And, and, that's, and I think that's an important part of it, which is I, I have mm. to – I think it's a good thing to find that more often in the a room, you are the most stupid person in the room. That means yeah. you're in a good room because if you're the cleverest person <laughs> in the room, you've you've not come to learn anything, and right. you think. And also, every time when I've done shows with lots of kind of mixing up scientists and musicians and performers of all, all different sorts, you will find that there is the scientist who has a, a, a particular uh, knowledge in terms of say mm-hmm. about genetics, and then he sees someone who has a French horn, and he says, "How does the French horn work? Yeah. Can you explain to it?" So. You know, the, the curiosity is the most important thing. I think that that's the bit where, uh, you know, for me, it's very exciting. Every time we do Monkey Cage, every time we do any of those things, uh, to be to know that I'm in a room with people who have various mm. areas of deep knowledge. And, and I also have to accept this is another important thing, which is I think sometimes when people first come back to science, maybe they weren't into it when they were at school, but they see some film or maybe they've seen Interstellar or something like that, and they're drawn into finding out more about black holes or whatever. They read a book and then they go, oh, I didn't understand it all. That must mean I'm not scientific. Yeah. that's a te- you know, The thing is, no, you're not going to be able to read a book about you know, quantum theory or black holes or genetics or, you know, uh, the the Big Bang, any of those things, and then go, I only needed to read one book and now I can Mm. expound on this. You know, there's so many different levels of understanding. I'm sure you've had this. There's a point where you watch someone talk and during that talk you go, yeah, I understand that. And then as you leave the room, all the understanding stays in the room. You haven't taken anything with you. <laughs> and then there's a second point of understanding where you do, in your brain, you really do understand it. But then your friend says, oh, can you a- explain that particular idea right. uh, uh, about the quark? And you go, is it with the, the small, the uh, no. And then there's a third level <laughs> when mm. you can actually start, it can come out. And you go, oh, yeah, I now understand this at a level where I can begin to explain it to other people. Mm, yeah. And, you know, that, that's quite funny as well. Like, you talk about the curiosity of people, and it really it's, it's a little bit heartbreaking when you – so often, so many of my friends will say, like, I hate science, I have no interest in it, and whatever. Which, I mean, which is a fair point. They've got an idea of science in their head, which is, like, studying at university or, or, or whatever, but – you know, those deep, simple questions like, why is the sky blue? They're so multifaceted. And Carl Sagan spoke about it many times. We're talking about with kids and kids ask these really flat, seemingly flat sentences and flat questions like, why is the grass green? Why is the sky blue? They're incredibly deep and have, you know, feelers into 10 different fields of science. Uh, And I think that that sort of really does show that every person has there's some there's something about being a human that has a natural amount of curiosity and if you are saying that you don't have it you have no interest it's probably because it's been stifled and it's been out of control and out of your control in the past i think there's two things that i think one i think that is true i i mean i i found it interesting i was talking to a teacher the other day and i said is it possible to go through the whole of the english and welsh uh, school system and never really know about the Big Bang, never have the story about the nearest we can get to the beginning of our universe. And I found out, yes, it is. And that to me seems a remarkable wow. thing that where in most cultures we will definitely be taught our creation myth. Mm-hmm. But you now, now that it's not 
a myth. Now it is based on 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 evidence and theory and equation, and we have this incredible story and these are amazing images as well. When you when you first see something, like the oldest picture of the universe, and you realise that in that picture, every tiny fluctuation is going to become mm-hmm. a galaxy and is going to become you and me and the rings of Saturn and all of those things. I think it's a terrible thing that those stories are not told and I think one of the things that we have sometimes in the education system and I know teachers battling against it uh, is we're being taught for pragmatic purposes uh, we're right. being taught because you need need to know this because then you might be able to build a thing or do, it's not about the story and to me that's a very important part of it which is science is is not just a collection of facts which have been gathered you know with a great big rake of facts and we rake in all the facts and we go that's what we've counted now here's what the mm. counting is and that the the two things i think are very important one is to tell the story the, what, how we connect with the universe and and the second side of it i think is a problem which is also people don't like to be living in doubt so once some people get to 18 19 years old they go why do i need to know that no i know how the universe works now this is another form of resistance so one side of it i think is that we're not properly connecting to to the story the story is not getting out there the different stories are uh, within science and the second one is also a, a cocksure this is sometimes why we see within the arts some a lot of journalists have come up via the arts and you can often see in their opinion pieces uh, mm-hmm. that they are a little bit tetchy that yeah. scientists can sometimes tell them they're wrong. Because in the way that we interpret a, a, a poem or a painting or a novel, you are allowed to have uh, a far greater level of subjectivity right. than you are allowed with, right. with science. There is a point where you go, no, this currently is not considered to be a theory. There is no evidence that backs this up. This is the work that has been done, and this is what mm-hmm. we currently believe about the universe. Well, I want to believe something else. Yes. Well, you can, but it's you know, it's it's the old Harlan Ellison line that gets repeated many times. You know, you're not entitled to your opinion. You're entitled to your informed opinion. No one has the right mm. to be ignorant, and yeah, you know, that kind of comes into that as well. I think. Yeah, I suppose that's that's sort of you know, and this falls into. This falls into the role of medicine and politics and whatever else. There is such thing as a universal truth, and obviously that universal truth is hard to find, um, and it's hard to get, and we will never be 100% at that universal truth. But there is a universal truth, and we, I suppose, need to pursue that, like you said, more than more than arts and things like that. Um, but I do suppose it brings up a fairly important question is why... Why has teaching been like this for the longest time? You know, because I, I remember when I was a kid, uh, a lot of the science stuff that I consumed was horrific. It was really bad. At school, at secondary school, I failed my science classes and then I, I went to university to study physics and chemistry. I loathed it. I really did. So there's obviously some sort of issue. And a lot of the even what I call like popular culture science is really quite boring and, and dry. And it begs the question, why has it been like that for the longest time? You know, there's the thing you mentioned before. It's about sort of acquiring the grades. But what else is it? Is it because scientists happen to have that sort of dry personality? Or what do you think? I don't think it is because I think, you know, there are, you know, when, when you look at, you know, characters like, you know, Schrodinger, they are fascinating characters. And you mm. look at a character like Einstein and uh, and you and you look at the incredible mind, you know, the way that Marie Curie works and all. These people are interesting people. I think there is still this cultural idea that art is fun and science yes. is, is is a boring thing that is needed for practical reasons of prevention of disease and being able to move faster. And I think there is that, that two cultures thing, you know, chipping away at it. But I, I mean, I mean, that's why I think one of the things that is very important is, you know, I almost think it should be mandated. I almost think there should be, be a, a law that mm-hmm. everyone for at least one hour a month at night time has to just go and stare at the sky on a clear night and look at the stars. And it doesn't matter about them knowing what the constellations are. It doesn't matter about them knowing about the structure of stars or the creation mm-hmm. of light or any of those things. It is just, it's, it's a connection without reason, which I think then feeds in to, well, I didn't have to ask questions, but I do have some right. questions. How far away is that? How old is the light that's getting to me? Is this inter- So this is true that this is the first time when it hit the back of my eye, that was the first interaction that particular photon has had as it's travelled through the universe. You know, all of those mm-hmm. things come out of that. But I think that's very often what is removed, which is 
just the looking at things, just that that moment. I mean, I, this period of lockdown in the room that I'm in at the moment, there is a, you probably see there's a shaft of lights, it doesn't close. But that that is uh, the little square window, which every night I look out of, and I look at the same patch of sky, and I see the change of that. And every single night I look at the dusk, and I take a picture of the dusk, because I thought, mm-hmm. well, I've basically got the same view every single day during lockdown. So how does that view change on a daily basis? How different is every single dusk on a daily? So I just think, you know, that because of this moment because of now having uh my ability to my freedom of movement is limited so this has now expanded my freedom to imagine uh and look at the sky around me and i think mm. things i mean i was i was interested in uh, the last live event that i did be- before the lockdown was with the uh, former leader of uh, of the uk's labor party and he asked me uh we were talking about astronomy and he said, you know, what, what, what's the most interesting thing in the last 10 years? I said, well, what, something that is just, I think, interesting for anyone is seeing an image of a black hole because they've been part right. of popular culture for, you know, 40, 50 years now. Certainly 40 years, I think, part of popular culture and, and really longer than that. Um, and it's, it's a fascinating thing to see that. And then he said, well, what is a, a black hole? And I started to explain ideas of mass and density and the inability of light to escape and the event horizon and all of these different things and, and neutron stars. And he just went, and he didn't stop after he just was absolutely uh amazed that the universe has i mean that it's like that moment when you find out that time is not a constant it isn't it does yeah. not run these things are counter instinctual they and you don't need a deep understanding you don't need to have to read uh the work of einstein or those who have gone on to explain and explore those ideas more just that first realization of the different experience of time and the fact that when you are moving at different speeds, everything inside you, uh, the the neural processes, the, the 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 metabolism, all of that adapts and changes to your mm. change of speed of movement. And that, you know, all of those things should just be out there. They should just be yeah, shared sure. as stories because they aren't just scientific facts. They are stories of what it is to be in the universe, and they are stories about what it is to be a living thing in the universe. Mm. I, you know, it's such a great point, and it's something that I think about. <clears throat> excuse me, something I think about quite a lot is um, when people often talk about sort of issues we have with the education system and why there are more people in STEM and why we can't only care about it to a certain degree. I really do think it is important, just like you said, that to improve STEM doesn't really mean improving the way it's taught in classes or something like that. It really is things like this, like taking a look at the stars. And recently I had a podcast with uh, with a lady called Tanya Harrison, and she, she was uh, a part of the mission operations for the Mars Rover missions, right? Incredibly interesting, interesting person, told me so much. And the thing that really stuck with me is she was just telling me how passionate people were and are about the rover missions just the normal general people how passionate they are and and it it, it happens to be a factor i suppose because humans are sort of attracted to mars in a different way than i think other planets right we've got sort of this affinity to mars um but she was saying just you know even with the with the with the uh the space race and things like that as well it is like this it's like this connection that we have that actually then blossoms into education and further caring about it. And these these sort of problems, and I, I think it says a lot about the philosophical need of um, trying to go out there and answer questions and find things out. And that, that's always the debate with astronomy, like what's the point of doing it? It's not It's not building us better buildings or something like that. But I really do think that doing things like that does actually enrich the entirety of society. Well, I, th- I think that's it. I was reading a, a quote from the novelist J.G. Ballard the other day, uh, who generally wrote, you know, dystopias, and 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 he's. I, I love his interviews, and I think he's he had a really exciting mind. But but he said uh, we found out that space is boring. We spent all that money, and people went to the moon, and we found out the moon was boring. Now, to me, that's an. I see that as a misunderstanding of one of the reasons of the importance of going to the moon, which is one by seeing how barren the moon is. And then comparing it with the Earth, and of course that wonderful right. picture that Apollo eight took of Earthrise, which which many Apollo astronauts have said is probably the most important thing. Certainly, Rusty Schweikart from Apollo nine considers that to be the most important thing that came out of the Apollo missions. Even more important than a human being standing on the moon mm. is our view 
from from a distance. And so I think that's one interesting thing, which is by you know Mars. It was interesting. What was it in the mid sixties, um, where when they basically found out that there appeared to be no evidence of life when there weren't mm-hmm. Lowell's canals and 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 other things. There was a sense that maybe the interest in Mars and indeed the kind of financial imperative to continue to look at Mars would disappear. Because it right. appeared to be, you know, the evidence of life was was, was not as as immediate as as we might hope. But I think again, all of those are the stories which enrich what this place is. And and this and, mm-hmm. and yeah, Rusty Schweikart is someone who's really worth listening to. Rusty, who I think he's the youngest Apollo astronaut, he's a mere eighty four mm-hmm. uh, years okay. old. <laughs> and uh, but he had a very interesting story, which was in you know he, he the, the Apollo nine mission there, testing out the lunar module, and he had this period of time where he went out to do a spacewalk, and the camera wasn't working, so he was just kind of left there for a few minutes. And he had, and he had been preparing for this by every Sunday when he, when his wife was out with a choral group, he would listen to certain mm-hmm. pieces of music and he would read certain pieces of philosophy, and he was preparing himself for being one of the few human beings who was going to go into space. Mm-hmm. And then he had this this five minutes or so just of free staring time, free floating time, just. And then it was five years later. When he was doing, uh, I forget, it was somewhere on Long Island, as far as I remember, just outside New York, where he uh, he did a speech, which was kind of quite an impromptu speech. He'd meant to plan it. And he started, it was the moment of him realising what had really happened to him and what had really happened to the human race as uh, a species that was now venturing into space. And he sees that very much as kind of the idea of the cosmic birth of of mm. this particular species, and it links also to things like Arthur C. Clarke's story, The Sentinel, the, which is two thousand one, a space odyssey, based on you know the idea of of the monolith in the Sentinel story, mm. is the extraterrestrials have placed it there to think will will we be interested in that species that's developing down there? Well, we'll be interested in them if they're the kind of species that has a desire to reach out and explore and go further and go beyond its own planet. And so at that point of communication in the Sentinel story, the point of communication with the monolith, that is the point where basically a signal will go off and will say to the extraterrestrials, yeah, those people have got an interest in stuff. They're Mm. curious. (laughs) Sorry, I answered questions in such a long way that I realised that whatever you asked has probably not in any way been answered (laughs) No, it totally has. Long ways are good as well, like like we said at the start of the podcast. Long ways is way better than a question and answer. And um, it makes me think of something else to say as well. And uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson, I think it was Neil deGrasse Tyson, quoted when he was talking about that, that fam- famous Earthrise picture, you know, he said that we sent sort of man on the moon to... To discover to discover the the moon to explore the moon and what we really discovered was ourselves and I think that's that's such an important point um, that I really really like and you know a couple of the other sort of physicists that I've spoke to and things as we often get onto the topic of space exploration and obviously aliens because those things sort of go hand in hand and there is no one of the sort of beauties of it is there is no sort of general consensus of what these brilliant minds think i've had physicists that i've spoke to that said if we sort of found bacteria on mars for example i think people think that maybe we would be amazed and obsessed with it for about five days and then things would just go back to normal and and there is sort of there is more reasons why we are fascinated and obsessed with space than just the alien thing i mean obviously be a different story if we found some massive city somewhere but i thought that was sort of an interesting point that um even when we discover that things are dead up there, like the moon or even like Mars, we're still sort of driven to some mm. weird degree, and I'm not really sure why. Yeah, I think that the the desire, what extraneous curiosity beyond our own survival needs seems to have been one of those things which has, you know, it's it, somewhere within the evolutionary advantage of the curiosity that leads to yes. tools. And so somewhere within that, is the extra bit of curiosity that goes, but let's now see what an atom is made of. Let's build let's uh-huh. build the Large Hadron Collider. Let's do that, and let's go into space. And I think it's interesting what you say about the, the limited amount of time that people may be interested in life, because I think you might be mm. right, though scientifically people will be amazed, Shoot. fascinated, and that takes a whole new part of the journey. That takes a whole new uh, ability to explore. Mm-hmm. I've talked to a lot of people like you as well who say, but actually the broader picture of of human fascination mm-hmm. it may be very brief and then the and then mm-hmm. you know that the only point that it really becomes significant 
is the point where we find something or they find us that is able to communicate with us that we find intelligent mm. life but i think that you know the general i'm sure you've had the same discussions it seems to me that that many scientists the majority of the scientists certainly i've spoken to think it's highly unlikely to even have uh, a galaxy of this size and not for mm. there to be other planets where there is some form of life but the likelihood of communication and the likelihood of consciousness is such an interesting thing. The likelihood of, well. of, of, of self-awareness. That When we look at all... Of, I mean, I'm always fascinated by the fact that life on this planet, it stays the same for such a long time. This, to me, mm. is such an odd thing. It doesn't take long for life to occur on, on the planet, mm-hmm. but it takes a long time for life to suddenly have, you know, post-Cambrian explosion, all of these incredible varieties mm. and the way that that changes the atmosphere and, and changes the entire the, the view of, of the planet. So how many, you know, first of all, how many planets just stay with this same very simple microbial life? I had one podcast with um, with a guy from, from SETI, right? A planetary scientist from SETI. And, and after that one, my, my month was ruined just because, you know, he just told me facts about that he himself is also sort of put in the work to discover, which makes it even more amazing, but just the number of exoplanets around the stars that we can see and things like that. And he was discussing sort of something that I'd never really, really thought of uh, called like the Christmas tree theory, which is kind of what you're saying there, which life can spring up so fast and it can disappear so quickly as well. So the chances of um, two close points sort of on the Christmas tree and the two lights lighting up at the same time is extremely small. And and that was something that really, really stuck with me. And, you know, it's funny, we're talking about aliens again. I feel like I do it with, with just about every scientist that comes onto the podcast. I do love that. I mean, but that that to me is actually, there's something beautiful as well about, you know, thinking about a film like Alien. That seems to mm. me to have some version of, you know, the likelihood of uh, two cultures occurring at the same time, two curious civilizations, two curious civilizations that reach a point of communication, which makes it permissible. That that the, of course we don't really know because we only have this one version of of, of life to, to use. Mm-hmm. But the idea that you will either arrive at a planet and go, we're just a bit too early. They're still very much yeah. at the microbial stage, or uh, they arrive at a planet and they go, look at these structures, look at these cathedrals, look at these incredible things. What a civilization this might have been. So that that moment of of coincidence which becomes a yeah. major part of that that story and and the pos- but I still think there's a beauty in you know if if we were or or when we think about the future here you know if there is the possibility that when we are long gone something else arrives and finds mm. you know those wonderful images that there was an obsession about 10 years ago wasn't it of these these beautiful images of what happens to our cities there's still a beauty in that you know sometimes when people are looking for the point and I think this is the, the you know, I, I've been in, I was talking to Katie Mack the other day. You know, Katie. I do know Katie Mack, yes. She's great. And her, her new book, The End of Everything, is really, really good. It's about the okay. different theories about how the universe is going to end. Um, it was interesting that some physicists I talked to don't have existential anxiety, and some do. Mm. And actually, her looking at all the ways that the universe will end, might end, um, hasn't necessarily made her happier with the scenario. You know, sometimes I find that scientists, by exploring it, it seems to bring. You know, Paul Dirac, who uh, a full, you know, full blown atheist Dirac, uh, but he was still very unhappy with the idea that there will be a point where all the information, not really the information he'd collated, not really the, the ideas of physics that he had, you know, that whole structure of physics would one day just vanish again. And there would be no library left over, and the information would have been for no greater destiny than the end of the universe. Yeah, I mean, I actually quite like this. I like that nowadays it's somehow sort of science. I don't know, because our understanding has grown. I don't know if there's there's so many great personalities out there discussing and communicating science. But I like that suddenly it seems that... um, Science is suddenly in the in the realm of of the soul, right? Suddenly in the realm of spirituality, and it, it should have been for for the longest time, but hasn't. It was always sort of this cold clinical thing that was never really associated with that. But these conclusions, talking about these conclusions, really does change how you reflect upon life, how you think, things like that. And and that's an interesting point. I think some people do feel 
either more or less comfortable when when they sort of realize that eventually the the universe is gonna uh, reach maximum entropy and burn up and the memory of you won't even be there and I, I think I think things like that it's really again talking about the philosophy of it like we were before with exploring the universe I think conclusions like this are really important for um, the growth of us as a, as a species well I think there's an interesting you know the block universe idea uh, which is similar to you know Nietzsche's idea of eternal recurrence. So you know philosophy looks at eternal recurrence. Then we have block universe, where the way that we experience time is kind of not actually the way that well, it's our experience, but the the universe, right. this 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 block of space time, which means that every moment exists forever. That there's nothing. Mm-hmm. There's no changing. There's no reincarnation. And you know Nietzsche talked about that idea that rather than uh, um, thinking about you know that that moment you live forever. So that that is a very good way of thinking about. If you're looking for a philosophy of how to live your life, think I right. must remember that this day is going to exist forever. So try and make it a good day. Now, in some ways, it doesn't it doesn't make a difference because you're yeah in, in terms of your reality. There's no yeah, but I think it does make when you start thinking about this. This day exists forever. So let's make it a good day. Let's try and make it a fulfilling day. Let's try you know, and and I think those ideas can feed very much into it. As, as you said, you know, I, I think there's an, a natural uh, feeling of of being uncomfortable with words like spiritual mm. with with science, and yet we have to make that connection because I do think you know, the, the block universe, the uh, creation of, of of atoms, the creation of some of you know when we find out some of the the more you know complex elements, the the processes that are required. You know, people very often talk about gold being one of the, the typical examples when you yes. start to find the process that has led to the things that are around you and you start to find out some of the ways that physics can look at the idea of space time mm. i think they can influence the way that you think about how to live your life i think that whole you know there's an interesting thing you know quite often when i talk to religious people there's the how why divided um science answers the how questions and religion gives us the why and i think but the problem is there is a really big chunk of how that yes. has to be fed in, in into why. That once you are given some of these ideas about what we see, what we experience as the reality of the universe, once you're given those ideas, I think they should affect your why answers. Mm. Yeah, I think it's um, I think it's quite brave of a lot of the sort of modern science communicators. I, I always talk about Carl Sagan because to me, like Carl Sagan is the the sort of perfect um, science communicator in a lot of ways because he didn't sort of mince his words. He was also an incredible speaker and he really did have the bravery to discuss everything in a scientific context. Uh, like A Demon Haunted World is one of the most life-changing books, honestly, I've ever read. It was fantastic. And he, even the way he discussed sort of the Cold War at the time and, and things like that and... Uh, Carl Sagan talks about I think was it I think it was Sean Carroll who I was, I was listening to a podcast with him recently was talking about the the idea of reclaiming these words like spirituality and things like that because like you mentioned they have this connotation that is sort of making the effort to separate um science from the discussion which I think as long as that is uh, as long as that is in the psyche of people that you know, you're completely separating things. It's always going to be difficult to increase the sort of level of uh, scientific literacy of the population. And that that is ultimately what a science communicator wants to do, right? Increase the science uh, literacy of the population. I think if it's if it's viewed as a completely separate entity, it, it's it's never going to occur. Yeah, I think you're right. I think the, the if if we just look at science as being what keeps our milk cold, then mm. you're not going. Even though that, of course, does actually have great ramifications for how your days can be experienced. Sour milk in, in you know tea obviously is a disaster. But I think you're, that finding those different ways. Of, and again, I think it's about the story. I think I, I was interested talking to a, a, a science teacher a few weeks back, a, a lovely guy called Alam Shaha, who also wrote a very good book called The Young Atheist Handbook, which I would highly recommend. Wow. And he was saying he was disturbed when he went to a teacher's conference that when the question came why do we teach science again it returns to it's how the world works it's it's so so we need mm. to, to know yeah. and it's what what you know everything that we look it's our smartphones it's that and you know it was the detachment from but it's much more than that 
It's not mm-hmm. a, it's not a separate subject. It's not a subject that I mean I think in certainly some, I know different university uh, education obviously you know in different countries there's different systems of it. But I I feel that in the UK's version there is a problem at the fact that you can get to 15, 16 years old. And you never have to go near science again. You can, and I think that, for instance, when if people go to do a degree, whether it's in arts or science, science degree should have some arts in it. And arts, and so for instance, part Absolutely. of the science curriculum, if you're studying physics, is you can also do the model about literature or about how uh, you know work of uh, Picasso and Max Ernst and all of those people that was influenced by what they found out about mm. quantum theory uh, and in the other side of it as well. Uh, within the arts there should be a point where there's a, a module where we look at certain kind of literature and how that then leads into scientific mm. ideas and just have a single thing which just attaches so that way of crossing over how your science has led to this art and how this art leads us to these scientific ideas i think will give us a much fuller picture of how the, there's a great book by John Higgs called Stranger Than We Can Imagine, and it's all about it's, it's about the loss of the omphalos, which is uh, it's the first time I came across the word omphalos, and now I see it yeah. all the time. It's like when you first exactly. go back to reading science books and you go, I've never <laughs> known inculcate was used so often, um, <laughs> and uh, and the omphalos is kind of the centre, and that once we have quantum theory, that's kind of the final centre gone. Mm. So already, you know, you know, Darwin's removed us from being a special creature. We're no longer the centre uh, of the solar system. All of these different things, and that that once you have a probabilistic universe, it's a kind of it's it's a loss of the last definite that you go you know, mm. this this certainty. Doubt has now got doubt has been peer reviewed to an extent, and it's such an interesting thing of the way that he explores so many of the ideas of the twentieth century, cultural ideas. He also has one of the best descriptions. I remember telling uh, a, a particle physicist this his his description of of quantum theory and explaining how something can behave both as a wave and a particle. He says it's like imagining that something can be both a brick and a song. And I think that mm. is a, a brick and a song. Yeah. What a beautiful way of seeing wave-particle duality. Yeah, I really, really like that because it, it sort of fits the bill. And th- this sort of does um, does bring me on to sort of another thing I, I wanted to ask you about, which is a good job because time has fly- flown with you already, Robin. It's been 40 minutes. But... Um, the, the Infinite Monkey Cage, I absolutely love. I really, really do. I love it. It's one of the, the greatest things that I listen to. Uh, and it's quite an important point because... It's certainly not typical science communication, not even slightly. And I think I'm not even sure if it was if it was done in America or something like that, it would even work the same way. It's like the banter that you have with these amazing minds that come on. Everyone's sort of taking the piss out of each other. And there's a lot of humor involved. Yet you're talking about some of the most serious sort of topics that exist within our universe. Um, So I suppose... What do you think is the importance of, um, I guess, the lightheartedness of what you're doing with uh, the Infinite Monkey Cage or even just any sort of education in whole, uh, as a whole when it comes to talks, um, performances, whatever there might be, or even what you mentioned before, crossing over the university paths where people in sciences must do arts. What is the importance of sort of removing science from that coldness and even plunging arts into sort of the world of science? It's such a weird thing because Brian and I uh, often forget that there aren't things like this because uh, we've been There's doing it so like long that. and it's also kind of it is a reflection of our relationship our, our off mic relationship right. you know in the way that we behave and it was interesting because we did do we we did a tour last year of uh, of the US and 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 Canada and it was interesting because we we had a great time in the US but there were certain things that hit a lot harder than when we mm. were playing Australia New Zealand Scandinavia whatever um but I think I think it is part of that humanizing thing. And again, it's not it's never been particularly deliberate. It's not like we 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 had an idea of what we wanted to make. Mm-hmm. And what I think is interesting is when it first came out, a lot of the radio critics uh didn't like it. They because they really? felt that in, in fact even we, we won a, a prize one year and we can never work out because all the judges everyone who reviewed us never liked the show and I never know how we, in fact apparently even in the room when we were announced as the winner the whole room went what? Uh, really? And, and I think part of it is because many of those critics have been used to shows which go hello welcome to science 
Today we're going to be talking about science, which is a very special thing, which you must talk about very, very seriously. And mm. and I think that has been uh, a sense... I think one of the things that is often lost in discussions uh, about science is something that you kind of touched on a bit earlier, is the sense of imagination, is that the great scientists, you know, there's that line which I will misquote, I apologise for misquoting this, but Einstein said something similar to, uh, with reason we can go from uh, A to Z, with imagination we can go wherever we want. And, mm-hmm. you know, this is this is true of many of the great scientists of the 20th century. You will find the essay they wrote or you'll find the lecture they gave where they started to talk how about how important imagination is. So I think that's one of the things that hopefully we get across. I mean, when we put together the show, the thing that we always hope is we aim to have three ideas in it, which the majority of especially non-scientific listeners will not necessarily have, have, have seen before. Just just three mm-hmm. little kind of little bits of theory or little bits of, you know, bits of research. And then the rest of it is kind of free time. The rest of it is, uh, we, we, we always have an idea. We have three parts of a show. We've never really got beyond the first part. This is why the end of every <laughs> single episode, and no episode as well, th- there's never a sense that we want to finish it because, you know, most recordings take a, a little bit over an hour. We right. could do them in half an hour. We could do them as a live show, but they wouldn't be as much fun because, of course, the most fun is that the scientists don't really know what we're going to be asking them. So they have to start thinking, and they haven't got a pre-planned... I mean, that's the important thing, I think, which is as everyone talks, sometimes people find out what they think as they're saying it. So I think that plays a part in it. There's an impromptu (laughs) nature to it, and I think every guest knows. A lot of the scientists, amazing, Paul Nurse, who is wonderful and and won the Nobel Prize and uh, runs the Crick Institute, all of these things, he was so nervous beforehand. And I was saying, but Paul, Mm. you've done incredible things, and we're not here to – we're not trying to embarrass anyone either. You know, that never – I hope that what we have is that we're both respectful but at the same time playful. And and that's mm. what we're aiming for. And I think that is the, those are what I see in the scientists that I meet, which is they uh, <laughs> that they they respect ideas, but they want to play with ideas as well. And I think mm. that's a very what we're trying to do with Infinite Monkey Cage as well is is that sense of play, imagination, and play. You can have fun with ideas. Sometimes the ideas do become restricted. There is a point where we get Absolutely. a level of understanding and evidence based information where there are things which are seen as forks that are too far away. And that unless you have a magnificent piece of evidence or an incredible mm. experiment which really offers that, that means that path has got thinned down. But many of the mm. other ideas can still branch off in many, many different ways. To you know, the bits where we don't have good knowledge, we play and we play and we play and we play. And then sometimes at that point of play, someone goes, You know the thing that I've built to go with this bit of play? <laughs> this seems to have proved that, doesn't it? That's interesting. We better right. do that again. And so I think that a lot of it is about yep. play. But I mean, we have such a great time doing it. I mean, that's oh, for sure. it's an absolute, you know, last year, Brian and I did, I think it was 120 gigs uh, across the world. And wow. um, we didn't fall out once. We had a couple of days really? where you're so jet lagged. And it seems so <laughs> weird talking about this now that this time last year, I think I was probably in, in uh, you know, somewhere in, in Wisconsin or North Carolina or whatever. But um, I, I think that is also, uh, we're such very different people but we have an understanding mm-hmm. of, where, of where we come from and yeah apart from occasional moments where i think he's grumpy he's tired i'm grumpy i'm tired i'm gonna sit over there he's gonna sit over there and i think is because though he's you know far smarter than me we're driven by a same level of curiosity mm, yeah and you know I, lo- I love the i love in the show there's sort of what you're mentioning like those moments of crossover where you know, because you've got a comedian on, you've got a bunch of scientists, and a comedian would just be like, what's the point? Or just something like that, which you you would never see a scientist have that question directed at them, really, in the same sort of light. And then vice versa as well. You see sort of uh, some of the scientists that you wouldn't ex- expect to say certain things say to comedians, also take the mickey out of them or do something as well. So much back and forth. It's really great. Well, the humanizing is that, I mean, when, when Brian and I do the live shows, generally he goes on and he does about 25 minutes and we've timed it you know i always describe myself as a professional idiot there's kind of and, and it's not a, it's a timing that occurs through doing it we eventually work out there is a point where an audience come to listen to a physicist and they go uh-huh mm. yep yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. 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 and then about 50 minutes in they go oh this, this beginning and then at 25 <laughs> minutes they need a break they need a, a, and they also perhaps need sometimes a sense that because you know people do see some you know brian is incredibly good at explaining ideas and doing it in an impromptu mm. manner so there, it has to be a moment where someone comes on to say don't worry 
He's he is also a human being. He is not merely he's not being created from Philip K. Dick's imagination. He is not you know he is not some replicant uh, and persistent affair of knowledge. And so and we balance it back and forth. And in the last show, we also had poetry in it, and we had we had lots of different things. Which I hope I think it was the most human show we did as well. It was an interesting thing because the final part of it, I would go on and read a poem uh, about building a den, uh, a, a kind of you know a. a, a twig and branch based in, in, in the woods with my son and talk about the passing of time and that, that sense of it was, it was all about building a den with my son and thinking is this the final den we're ever going to build because you're going to move on to your next day and all of that mm. and then Brian would come on and talk about the physics of time and he would talk about the fact that you know the, the very laws of the universe that mandate there must be life are the laws that mandate there must be death and yep. there must be an end and that was always a very interesting moment in certainly in different cities and very often in different countries. I mean, I mentioned before in the US right. that, that point in the US when that was delivered as an idea, you could sense that moment where in, in, in the UK and in, in Sweden and, and, and in New Zealand, all those places, right? It was just kind of like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. But in the US, you got a sense of, whoa, not yeah. a negative. It wasn't a negative thing, but it was a real... Yeah. A delivery of, of of information which was taken in, uh, I, I think, with even greater kind of uh, seriousness at that point. Yeah. But I think the fact that it was yeah. mi- mixed up with jokes and poetry and then beautiful images as well. Well, I mean, one of the, one of the beauties of America is it, it is this sort of this brightness is pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and and, and working hard and that kind of thing. But I, I think a, a consequence of that and the thing that you feel quite differently comparatively to Australia and the UK is they they don't have that sort of the same sense of um darkness i think that maybe the uk or australia might have which is which is an interesting point uh, so just for sort of the last five odd minutes i don't want to keep you too long i did want to mention one other thing which is just sort of you and books now one of the things just with your instagram and obviously your podcast too there's something that which i really respect that you do and something that i'm trying as hard as i can to do myself is i get the feeling that you basically just pick up any sort of book and so many times i'll see on your instagram i'm like where why does he have this book but then you'll say something about it and it sort of makes me want to read it and and experiences that i've had where someone has given me a book as opposed to me sort of going out and searching online trying to find the best book and i read it and have no expectations they turn out to be some of the some of the best books that i've sort of ever ever read so without opening a huge pandora's box of the importance of books which is a conversation that can last another few hours um why do you have sort of this curiosity associated with books and and why why do you have such free range with them what what, what is the sort of desire behind having such free range with what you read you know one side of me really wishes i could focus because i think that's the thing is that i just i'm fascinated by so th- and sometimes i'm I, it depresses me that I can't focus on on, on right. one thing, that I can't get a depth of knowledge. So now, again, in this period of time, almost returning to what we were talking about at the beginning, which is I've accepted that I'm never going to have any deep understanding of any single idea. So inside every book, you know, what I hope with every book that I recommend <laughs> is that it will change some of your sense of what it is to be in the universe or some of your sense mm. of what it is to be. You know, I, I think it's a beautiful thing. I mean, it is... Books to me are kind of a, a hallucinogenic drug. You 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 go into another world. It creates another world in your head, and that the vividness of that picture. I mean, there's there's a wonderful collection uh, that came out recently. I think it's called Others or The Others, and it's all it's actually from a guy who's done interesting philosophical work in terms of mm-hmm. uh, of neuroscience. A guy called Charles Fernhoff, and um, the, everyone who writes in it is writing from the perspective of having not what one might consider the mean average story of it. I know no one has a mean average story but it's, it's mm. basically people who would be considered sometimes to be on the outside whether it may be down to race sex gender whether it may be down mm. to illness whether it may be down to many and um the point of that book is that in each story it really gives you a, a sense of what it is not to be you of what mm. it you know and i think it's so important now that when you see the way that so many different groups are dehumanized i mean to me it's one of the great battles at the moment and it always have probably has been is if we dehumanize we see it on social media the whole time you know a whole group is dehumanized right. when you then go into a book and you read an individual story you go oh 
Oh man, I, I didn't realise that. That's that gives me a mm. sense of th- this is, you know, I I have that realisation, and I should have got it much earlier. You know, I I am in a very lucky position. I'm you know I'm uh, white middle class heterosexual male, mm-hmm. and uh, from that perspective, it takes a lot more for me in the outside world to garner abuse. You know, I used to say, you know, some people the moment they leave their front door, they yes. are already that. Whereas for me, I've kind of got to say something and I normally do because I can't shut up as you found out of course. but that that to me is a very important so, so that's one of the examples of why I love books is because as well as enlarging the the possibility of of what the universe might mean to me what other human beings might mean to me it allows you to take that walk in someone else's shoes and it will only mm. you know I always worry if I go into a house and there's no books I kind of think this isn't. They've used all those shelves for those glass yeah. swans. They've just got a collection of glass swans and candles where there should be books. And and I think reading just it does really. Uh, it just gives you so many more questions as well. You know, the st- I mean, the stack I've got here actually is predominantly science books because of what I'm uh, working on at, at at the moment. But I just you know whether it's books about artists, whether you know novels. Uh, I can't do long novels, of course. I did Alan Moore's Jerusalem, which is longer than the Old Testament. That's me done for long novels for the next 10 years oh, i'll do Ulysses later um but that's because i'm hungry i go right i've got to page 60 and it's kind of changed the way that i think about things so i'll move on to another one now yeah i it makes me feel better that you're saying that in all honesty because i really struggle with with longer books i uh I, recently i read sort of two murakami books right i read 1q84 which is the size of a brick and i wanted to stab myself in the head when i was reading beautifully written really great book don't get me wrong but it was just so long and then i read another one called sputnik sweetheart which is I think it's 150 pages long it's a beautiful like poetic little sort of romance novel and i'm like i'm getting more out of this just because it's shorter which I, I'm, not, I'm not sure what reflection that has on me but maybe like you said the the patience and getting bored so easily yeah sometimes you've got to work out your limitations and use them to the Absolutely. best of your ability and i'm exactly the same because i think there is a point if you're reading a book that's 500 pages long half of you is reading the book and the other half is going how far through am i now how far through yes. am i now but if you've got a book that's 200 pages <sighs> 150 whatever you can just i like that journey to be within also mm. a small amount of time that's mm. not against i mean i understand i also think there's a thing with a book like ulysses which was deliberately written uh in some ways by james joyce go we well, you know what i want people asking i want people to have to <laughs> spend their whole life thinking about this it's not merely the novel when you finish the novel you've then got to keep going well hang on a minute what does that mean about dublin and what does that mean actually about homer's odyssey and what does that mean about that and uh, i think that's a very selfish act by an author yeah, he's trying to steal everyone's time. All right, Robin, this has been awesome. Really, really appreciate you spending time. And like I said, you've been so, so easy to talk to. And we've talked about a couple of things I wasn't expecting to, which is even better. Um, if anyone's sort of interested in, in what you've had to say or, or you as a speaker in general, what can they do? Where can they go to find out more? Well, there's a site that I, I do with my friend Trent, which is just called CosmicShambles.com. And that's where we have loads of the science interviews that are done. And we also do regular, uh, well, at the moment, we do a show every single morning and we do mm-hmm. things like live science Q&As and stuff like that because during lockdown. We probably keep some of those things after lockdown as well. But that's got the huge kind of, you know, most of the stuff that I make for, for online. And then you can find right. out about the kind of the, the books that I've written and stuff like that as well. If you enjoyed this episode of the podcast, please subscribe to us. Go to any of our social media accounts or website. Tell your friends, tell your grandparents, do anything you can do in your power to help us out because it will allow us to continue doing this podcast for everybody, which we greatly appreciate. Thank you for the support and see you next time.